God damn you. It is a little strange that we have such an aversion to slavery uh, because historically there have been abuses for many people, poor people, perhaps people who weren't educated, perhaps people who had no other opportunity. Working for a gentle, caring, loving master was the best of all possible worlds. Campus is a loaded minefield. There are girls everywhere. It's guaranteed that I will pass some attractive girls as I walk in between classes. If it's not requiring her to sin, but simply hurting her, then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season, and she endures perhaps being smacked one night, and then she seeks help from the church. It would be hard for me to see how a woman could be a drill sergeant, right face, left face, keep your mouth shut, private, oh, oh, over, over men without violating their sense of manhood and her sense of womanhood. Go home. They want power, not equality. This is the highest location they can ascend to that power in the evangelical church. We are meaning makers and storytellers. And the stories we tell ourselves are the stories that shape our lives. We need each other badly or goodly. We need each other. And we keep forgetting again and again and again that we are loved. And we say, no, I'm no good. No, I messed it all up. No, I feel so guilty. No, I feel so ashamed. We need each other. In the midst of this difficult, dark, and often violent world, we need to have a community of support to which we can call all people and be a community of hope. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Opening. This is episode seven. And I have some big news this week, actually. This past week, I released another single. And for those of you who don't know, I produce music as well as my writing. And so for my music, I go by the artist name Provoke Wonder. And you can find my music anywhere on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your music at, YouTube, Amazon, Basically, you know, wherever you're going to find music, wherever you're going to stream or purchase music, it should be there under Provoke Wonder. So this week I released a new single called Dear Church, and Dear Church was a very, uh, it was a very tough song to write because I was really beginning to confront the church, uh, confront evangelicalism for the wounds that it gave me beginning, uh, you know, when I was three or four years old, I remember I was, I mean, I remember four years old hearing that I was going to be potentially set on fire for eternity if I didn't get my theology right, if I didn't say this prayer and really mean it. And so um, basically, I, I, I look at when I was three, when I was four, when I was 12, at, when I was 22, and when I was 38, in these different stages of my life, and basically talk about some of the trauma that I felt in those particular stages of my life. And so it's, it's kind of a, 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 a song that will 
remind you of the the traumas that you have had probably it's a song that is it's specific to my story but i think it's a, a story that a lot of people will resonate with and but it's also it's also a, a, a st- song that asks some questions about you know what if what if i was a beautiful child and what if that was enough what if nobody had to violently die so i could be loved by a god who is love these are some questions that I, that i have for the church and um those are obviously uh, some rhetorical questions in in my view because they're meant to get us to reflect on on the nature of our good news and on why we believe some of the things that we do and and to evaluate is this really is this really a a good healthy attractive message that uh, w- would foster a spiritual health in people or is this something is this a, a message that is fueling trauma that we hold in our bodies and so that's a that was a something I wanted to explore in music and so I wrote it in into the dear church song this is a the first of three singles that is going to be that are going to be coming out over the next few months I'm working on one right now called go be free and so we're just wrapping up the the instrumental part of that and we'll be doing the vocals here soon and then I've got another one in infinite mystery and so that'll be coming out after that. And then basically they're going to be going on an EP uh, that we'll put together and it will have all three of those songs on it. And so look for those to be coming out. Uh, like I said, Dear Church by Provoke Wonder is already out wherever you get your music. And then we'll have two more singles and an EP coming out throughout the year. And you never know when something else might come up uh, that might be written and, and recorded f- with the music as well. So as far as this episode goes today, we are going to be getting into an article that I wrote uh, back in uh, June 20, on June 20th of 2020. And it was in response to uh, an article that Kevin DeYoung wrote for the Gospel Coalition about uh, his culture war strategy. And so in this episode, we're going to be talking, uh, reading through this article, and then we're going to be talking a bit about Kevin DeYoung and his culture war strategy. sound asleep when suddenly I get jolted awake by my screaming four-year-old son. Bleary-eyed, I try to get a grip on my surroundings as I roll out of bed, pull up some shorts, and put on a shirt. My four-year-old son is upset because he can't get the TV to turn on. As I'm trying to deal with him in the hallway, my two-year-old daughter wakes up crying with a poopy diaper. The three of us head downstairs to start our day. When we get downstairs, I discover that my six- and eight-year-olds have already helped themselves to breakfast, with one of them spilling the milk on the floor. Now, I'm wrestling two hungry little ones through diaper changes, in which they keep lifting their butts and trying to spin while I wipe. I forget about the spilled milk and start making breakfast for the younger two. While I'm making their breakfast, the two-year-old runs through the spilled milk, slips, and falls. Now I'm cleaning and comforting her while making breakfast. Then once I get her settled in, she doesn't want what I made. Eventually, I get the spilled milk cleaned up. 
when my 10-year-old calls down that he's out of toilet paper. So I throw him up a roll of toilet paper and start making my wife's coffee, breakfast, and lunch before she heads out to work. I'm a stay-at-home dad to five kids. My wife leaves for work, and it's time to make breakfast for my 10-year-old, while also dealing with whatever else comes up unexpectedly with the other four. Having a lot of kids is really fun. We can't imagine life without any of them. They each carry within themselves something beautiful and unique, but it's also very difficult. Between homeschooling, laundry, cleaning, cooking meals, spending quality time with each one, and dealing with unexpected fights, it's often difficult to imagine just making it through the afternoon. Enter Kevin DeYoung and the Gospel Coalition. Kevin DeYoung is really upset that the Supreme Court ruled that the LGBTQ community cannot be discriminated against in the workplace because he's afraid that religious institutions who refuse to hire LGBTQ people will face litigation in the future. He says that voting Republican hasn't worked, so he has another solution. DeYoung says, quote, Here's a culture war strategy conservative Christians should get behind. Have more children and disciple them like crazy. Strongly consider having more children than you think you can handle. You don't have to be a fertility maximalist to recognize that children are always lauded as a blessing in the Bible, unquote. He then questions the usage of birth control. He goes on, quote, Do you want to rebel against the status quo? Do you want people to ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you? 1 Peter 3.15 Tote your brood of children through Target. There's almost nothing more countercultural than having more children. He qualifies that by having... By... <laughs> He qualifies that by saying how important it is to get your kids to agree with you about theology. Then, with the stroke of prophetic vision, he concludes, quote, The future belongs to the fecund, unquote. To be fair, he does briefly mention loving God, people, and the truth, but the thrust of his article is not about love, but about getting your wife constantly pregnant with a ton of babies. Before my wife and I had our five kids, we struggled to get pregnant. For years, we longed to have a family to love together. But with each passing month, each passing year, the pain of not being able to have children grew. Yet, as deeply as our pain cut, we continued believing the right theology and trusting in the goodness of God. We read every article, tried every trick in the book, and even had awkward doctor's visits. And then, in December of 2008, we finally gave up hoping for a pregnancy and decided to pursue adoption immediately. We had actually planned on adopting all along, but we always had hoped that would one day happen after a few kids. Then, just when we, quote, surrendered our dream to God, we found out that we were expecting our first child. In our mindset at the time, we were certain that this was poetic sovereignty, as if God was withholding a child until we fully surrendered. We could not have been more overjoyed. A few weeks later, we would be flying to South Carolina and Maryland, and we're going to tell our families. But the day before we left, we found out that we were having a miscarriage. And suddenly, God's provision of a pregnancy felt like God was playing games with our hearts. As my wife was passing our dead baby through her body, a pastor decided to confront us. Not knowing about our struggles or the miscarriage, he said, "'You two have waited too long to have kids.' Young people these days only care about making money. It's time you stop worrying about money and start having kids. 
As my wife's eyes welled up with tears, my fists clenched. I got in the pastor's face and said, It's taking everything in me not to punch you right now. Bewildered, the pastor asked, Why? I explained how long we had struggled to have kids and how my wife was in the midst of having a miscarriage. The pastor looked like he had seen a ghost and said, Okay, you can punch me. I didn't. Kevin DeYoung should know better than what he writes in this article. He's a pastor who cares for singles who haven't connected with someone to marry, for couples who can't have kids, for small families who are struggling with the one or two kids they do have, and for large families who often feel like they're in over their heads. The sensitivities around topics of marriage and kids run deep. I know. I've lived through each of those categories. People long at the core of who they are to love and be loved. This core desire for love is at the heart of Jesus' call to love ourselves, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to love God. To get so angry and fearful over a Supreme Court ruling against discrimination that you would reduce the complexities and depths of our deepest human desires for love to a culture war is pastorally careless. By saying that the future belongs to the fecund, Kevin DeYoung is dismissing the future for all who remain single or cannot have children. By calling more children a culture war strategy, Kevin DeYoung reduces women's bodies to warrior factories and reduces children to theological and political pawns. By strongly recommending having more children than you think you can handle, Kevin DeYoung dismisses the very real challenges and dangers of having large families that families like mine face every day. By thinking that people are going to ask you for a reason of the hope that lies within you when they see you toting your brood of children through Target, he reveals that he has no idea how difficult it is to tote a ton of kids through Target. Yes, I know he has like eight kids. But also, weren't conservative Christians boycotting Target anyway? And by getting this upset over businesses not being able to discriminate against LGBTQ people, he's giving the LGBTQ community that he wishes to reach for Jesus a very large stumbling block in the way of listening to what he and his warriors have to say in their fight against the LGBTQ quote-unquote agenda of non-discrimination in the workplace. The future belongs to the fecund? How about, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Fight the LGBTQ community by making a ton of babies for a culture war? How about, love your enemies? How about turning from theology-fueled guilt and shame to learning to see and love yourself, your family if you have one, your neighbors, your enemies, and God? Then if you happen to have kids, how about walking with and supporting them in that journey as well? And whether you have kids or not, how about learning to love the child within yourself that's been forgotten and wounded in decades of culture wars? In loving yourself, your family if you have one, your neighbors, your enemies, and God, you might just discover the face of God in your enemies. And in learning to see and love them, discover that your enemies were actually your neighbors, that your enemies were even your family and that your enemies were reflections of the forgotten and wounded child within yourself flowing from the heart of God.
So part of what I want to do, as I've said in this podcast before, is not only to take down religious hierarchies, but also to model a uh, a growing perspective of uh, a growing awareness uh, as as my perspective changes over time. And, and that's why I'm reading some of these articles that weren't just written last week. These are articles that I wrote, you know, this one was in, in 2020, it was a year and a half ago. And so I think taking some time having some space between writing the article and, and then seeing how things have played out and learning even some more on my own, I'm able to critique even more the the person uh, or the issue that we're dealing with, but also I'm able to reflect on my own previous perspective on it. And, and so one example, and we're going to get in, into a good bit of uh, Kevin DeYoung in this episode, but but one example that I have uh, changed a little bit since the writing of this article is in this par- the sentence where I say Kevin DeYoung is dismissing the future for all who remain single or cannot have children, and I would say that that's true. But I would also say that my awareness has grown beyond just people who are single or who can't have children. You know, there there may be people who are in a relationship but are asexual, or there may be people who simply don't want to have children, or there may be poor people who can't afford to have children. And so there are there are more than just these two uh, groups of people: the single and those who can't have children. Uh, there are there are any number of of people situations where children may not be a thing uh, in their life. And so I think that Kevin DeYoung, my, my, what my point was about Kevin DeYoung dismissing the future for these people was true, but it was for far more than just the, the people that I named in the article. And, and so getting to his point, though, uh, he, he, he's reducing children to a culture war strategy. And that's something that I've noticed is is a common thing that that evangelicals often tend to do is they reduce children to certain things like a culture war strategy or like Stephen Lawson just tweeted the other day. He said, you need to have two births, one physical and the other spiritual. The problem with your first birth demands the second one. And so He's reducing, you know, he was reducing children to a problem. You know, you you have a, a child that gets born, that's a problem, and it's a problem that is deserving of eternal conscious torment in his theology. And, and so, you know, there's this pattern here of reducing children to strategies and problems, and, uh, and arrows is another one that they'll, they'll often use. And, and, and they have reasons that they can come up with from the Bible to support why they're reducing children to these these things. But I think that what it's doing is it's ultimately dehumanizing kids. And uh, and for another thing, like even within, even if you accept the conservative evangelical view of penal substitutionary atonement, and eternal conscious torment, like, why would you gamble with having kids? 
why would you gamble with your kids' souls? If there was even if there was even a 10% chance that you would have a child that would get that would end up getting set on fire for eternity because they didn't believe in evangelical theology, why would you take that risk? There there's there would be it would be it would be absolutely inhumane to take that risk if you knew there was even a 10% chance of your child burning forever. And yet yet evangelicals just fill up their they want, you know, according to Kevin DeYoung, he wants them to to fill up their brood going through Target. You know, now all of a sudden you've got this huge family and you can't give the kids all of the attention that they need and that they deserve. Uh, and, and then you're putting their eternal soul at risk because you've got to divide it up between 12 kids. Like how much how much stress are you going to have? I can't even I can't even have the eternal soul of of one child weighing on my shoulders, let alone an entire brood going through Target. And so I think that there's just this um there's there's this really odd relationship between evangelicals and children. And one one way that shows up is in Kevin DeYoung's uh, book. He has a, a baby alphabet book. And you know, you've got these baby alphabet books. I've got I've got a ton of them. A is always for apple, you know, B is for banana or something. C is for carrot. And and so Kevin DeYoung came up with one of these things. And he mentioned 12 times how God punishes us and only one time how God loves us. And then when he gets to the letter G, of all the words he could have used, he used the word gnat because of the the plagues of gnats, like, you know, of God's, of God's punishment. It's like, really? Gnat? Like, if you're going to fill babies' heads with images of God violently punishing everyone, at least use words that make phonetic sense. Like, he's literally got God, gospel, grace, go at his disposal for the letter G. You know, maybe grapes or Goliath or Garden of Eden or gift or good. But he goes with gnat, a, a, a word that doesn't even have the G sound in it. it. It makes absolutely no sense. But that's where they automatically go is they've got to set up this framework for kids of law and punishment, law and punishment. And then, oh, you know, Jesus will will step in and take the wrath of God for you. But it's just, it creates such a such an awkward children's book where babies are learning about gnats and, and God punishing everyone. And that's going to affect your children. It's going to seep into their, not only their minds, but their bodies. It's going to, they're going to hold a trauma in their bodies and their bodies are going to react in a way that's going to protect themselves from this God. You can talk to trauma therapists and they will confirm that the people who have these fears, their bodies will work to protect themselves. And you're setting this relationship up in your four-year-olds uh, with, that's how you're setting up their relationship with God. And so it's just, it's it's very problematic. And 
and, and it goes beyond that with, with Kevin Young. He was silent in the Sovereign Grace Ministries sexual abuse cases. He's, he's still not dealt with that. And, and then he, you know, he treated Beth Allison Barr in, in a very dehumanizing way. He, he went after her, uh, her scholarship as a historian, and he talked about Phoebe in, in Romans 16, uh, who, who was a, a church leader. He, he said she was more just like a general servant, just an ambiguous general servant, and, and no, nothing really to see there. And, 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 and it's just, it's continually dehumanizing children, dehumanizing women. Uh, he, he went against, uh, anytime there's a racial situation that comes up with, you know, there's a book by some, uh, called Reparations, uh, where they're trying to take a, a biblical approach to repairing relace, or race relations and, and, um, and restoring relationships and, and, and the traumas and the difficulties that black Americans have struggled with and have been under. And of course he reacts against that. And, um, and, and, and then this last week, he, he wrote an article about abuse and he, he gave some, you know, he gave some nods to handling abuse, but he also, he had a lot of problematic stuff in there. And, um, he said, and he had, he had a tweet, and he said, "Guilty until proven innocent is not a Christian way to pursue justice, nor is it loving our neighbors as we would want to be loved." And I'm like, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, like, literally, Kevin DeYoung's entire view of the gospel and all of humanity is guilty until proven innocent. By his own definition, here, his gospel isn't Christian. But when it comes to justice for Kevin DeYoung and his friends, he wants restorative justice. You know, his pastor friends that are being accused of, of sexual abuse cover-ups. For, for them, he wants restorative justice that flows from loving our neighbors as ourselves. And, and ironically, I agree with restorative justice. I agree with that. I just happen to think that that's what justice should be for more than simply Kevin DeYoung and his powerful pastor friends. I believe that restorative justice is what justice should be for everyone. And, and, and Kevin Young wants to have that for himself and his buddies, but then have justice as violent retribution for everyone else. And so I think he has fundamentally a, a, a problem of picking and choosing when he wants restoration. He wants it for those in power who abuse people, but he wants retribution for those who reject the the theology of the powerful. And I think that is extremely problematic. That is a, a, a sign of religious hierarchy that absolutely has to fall. And there is a... Uh, you may have heard of Rachel Denhollander. Her her husband, Jacob, uh, she Rachel Denhollander, she was really instrumental in, in exposing a lot of sexual abuse with the Olympic team and with uh, different ministries in conservative evangelicalism. And so her husband, Jacob, wrote a really helpful response to this uh, other Kevin DeYoung article about abuse that just recently came out. And so I wanted to read uh, Jacob's response to him, because he, he can do it. They're, they're much, uh, much 
uh, more experienced experts in this area than I am. So this is what Jacob said. This article is unhelpful because of how it frames the ongoing discussions about abuse. It seems to contemplate a situation where advocates run amok, destroying churches and institutions willy-nilly, while powerless leaders are destroyed without cause. Absurd. It presents two present dangers we must avoid. On the one hand, abuse is perpetrated and covered up in churches. On the other hand, unhealthy correction can lead to a situation where even the mere accusation of abuse takes down everyone and everything in its path. Unquote. And of course, no one would want to live in a world where a mere accusation is acted upon without due process and someone suffers unjust consequences as a result. All but the most unreasonable ideologue recognizes the value and necessity of due process. Just where are these churches and institutions that are being, quote, taken down, unquote, by unfounded gossip? Where are the pastors being fired without so much as an investigation? I can point to an endless catalog of abuse. I can't think of a single concrete case of this overreaction, unquote, unquote. This is what makes DeYoung's article so intensely misleading. In the first section, What Needs to be Said, he rightly acknowledges the problem of abuse in our churches and our failure to respond correctly to victims. There are real lives being destroyed by leaders. However, his next section, What We Need to be Careful About, does not focus on equal challenge where does not focus on an equal challenge where pastors are being deposed or churches destroyed by kangaroo church courts. He's talking about social media and online discourse. On the one hand, we have lives being destroyed and religious leaders who are protected by institutions. On the other hand, we have amorphous concerns that people on social media have not been balanced or understood the nuances. Those are not remotely the same. In this way, unreasonable social media... Uh, quote-unquote, is used to paint the whole work of advocates as somewhat dangerous and suspect, when in fact actual advocates have been hyper-focused on investigations and due process as the path forward. And for all the noise, all social media can do is raise awareness. There's nothing you can do to affect real change with only a social media account. You have to also be involved with the organizations, working with boards and bylaws and task forces. Social media can be intensely frustrating by opening you up to ignorant criticism, but the reality is that those in power are not simply opening Twitter and then reacting based on the latest hashtag. At best, social media can do all social media can do is raise awareness of issues. It cannot force action. And I can tell you that amongst the people who actually make the decisions in Christian organizations, there is absolutely no danger of, quote, making new victims in their zeal to care for victims, unquote. In fact, while boards will talk about due process, they are hesitant to implement it. I cannot think of a single instance where it was victims of abuse and their allies who were trying to avoid due process. Social media is often a last-ditch attempt to obtain due process. It is those who have something to lose who obstruct any attempts at independent fact-finding. Kevin himself has sadly been part of the obstructionist impulse when it comes to allowing for some form of due process to get to the bottom of accusations. In 2018, after Rachel Den Hollander raised serious issues with the Sovereign Grace Ministries and their re response to abuse, it is widely known 
that Kevin, who had defended them in the past, remained publicly silent in the face of these issues being raised. What is not widely known, however, is that Sovereign Grace Churches consulted Kevin while writing their response why an investigation was not necessary in 2018. This article says some fine things, acknowledges some truths, and I don't disagree with every one of his cautions as general principles. However, contrasting these two quote-unquote dangers as if they're anything near the same level is misleading. I think that Kevin's conclusion paragraph is an unfortunately telling indication of where he is coming from. The real danger here is that authority is under attack, with concern about abuse sometimes serving as a pretext to undermine pastoral authority in general. The idea that it is victims and their advocates who are the ones about to, quote, burn the house down, unquote, is frankly, is a frankly insulting comparison. If anything, it is men like DeYoung who poo-poo the size of the fire and decry the need to call the fire department because it might make a mess. To continue the metaphor, serious victims advocates have been working tirelessly for decades to tell people there's a fire in the kitchen because they care about the house or at least the people in the house. And instead of thanking them for pointing the fire out, evaluating why they didn't notice the smoke despite all the alarm bells, shouted warnings, and burned people, guys like Kevin instead have the nerve to lecture people about not lighting the house on fire? I thought those words were extremely powerful coming from such an experienced abuse advocate in, in Jacob Den Hollander. And so then Boz Chavijan, who is a lawyer who handles a lot of these sexual abuse cases, he said, Kevin's words here are a complete farce. Just ask my clients about Kevin's response after being informed that they had been sexually abused as children at Christ Covenant Church. Here's a hint. We filed a lawsuit. I realize that this is coming down pretty hard on Kevin DeYoung. And and I realize that some people are going to feel like I'm being overly negative in a podcast episode. But quite frankly, this is a serious problem. And this is uh, Kevin's writing and Kevin's teaching is consistently harming people. And it needs to be called out. He, his articles are consistently some of the worst articles, some of the most harmful articles that the Gospel Coalition is putting out. And, and I think a lot of it is, is due to his culture war mentality. He's going into, and this is the article I originally read from 2020, He's, he's saying, we need to have a culture war, we need to fight this war, we need to have a bunch of children to use as pawns in order to fight this war against our neighbors. And I think that culture war mentality is, is revealing that Kevin DeYoung is so concerned with fighting his neighbor that he's not willing to see and listen and learn from and love his neighbor. And, and when you have virtually no neighbor awareness... That's a sign of having virtually no self-awareness. Because, as I've said throughout this podcast, and I will continually say, when you have self-awareness, when you begin to meet 
the child within you, you're going to recognize your neighbor. Your child, the child within you is, in a sense, your neighbor, and you will recognize your neighbor in yourself. And, and so when you have virtually no neighbor awareness, that's a sign that you have virtually no self-awareness. And so to be quite blunt, I think Kevin DeYoung needs to stop writing, he needs to stop preaching, and he needs to start doing the hard work of self-awareness. And, and quite frankly, his position of power in his church and in the Gospel Coalition doesn't mean a thing to me. All that does is says he's on a higher level in the Tower of Babel hierarchy, and that's just even more reason why he needs to stop writing, stop preaching, and start doing the hard work of self-awareness. And, and, and that may sound harsh, but that's actually the most loving, restorative thing that could possibly happen. You know, Jesus, Jesus and John Wayne, the book, would have never had to have been written had white evangelicals simply decided to love their neighbors rather than fight culture wars against them. And the way you learn to love your neighbor is by learning first to love yourself. And you realize that behind all of the warrior masks that we put on, behind all of those, you you take away those masks, you take off the masks, and behind it all is the inner child. It's a wounded inner child who is afraid, and and I believe that that is what is behind these culture warrior masks of conservative evangelicals who are constantly calling out the LGBTQ agenda, the, you know, whatever they're trying to fight next. It's been going on for decades. Read Jesus and John Wayne. But behind all those masks is an inner child that they need to get in touch with that they need to become aware of, that they need to meet again. They need to lay down next to, in the dirt, and, and just be present with their inner child. And that's, that's where, uh, by deconstructing their power dynamics and their platforms and, and taking off those masks and deconstructing those masks, you're opening up. You're opening up calluses. You're opening up... Um, armor, you're opening up wounds, and you're you're getting to that place where you can meet with the core of who you are, that inner child. And that is uh, something where you're not going to be concerned with building another tower. You're going to simply be there with your childlike self and be present with self and neighbor in yourself. And then that will drastically affect the way you treat others. And so that actually brings us to the end of the articles f- that I had written before my articles that were published. I'd, I'd mentioned that I started getting published by Baptist News Global, and but I wanted to have some episodes first of some articles that I had written before uh, I got published. And so this was one of the, this was the last one. Um, the very next one I, I wrote was an article about Calvinism. And, and these, uh, these, these Gospel Coalition guys, they're, most of them are, are Calvinists. They're conservative evangelical Calvinists. And, and yet, it's a little confusing because 
then a lot of the people critiquing them are also Calvinists. And so um, I wrote this article back then about Calvinism, and that was the one that got the attention of Baptist News Global, and they wanted to publish it. Uh, but I've, now I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that article, but I'm also noticing how a lot of the critiques of these pop Calvinists are also Calvinists. And so that's going to be what we're going to be sorting through and looking at in our next episode of The Opening. I don't think that the church has integrity to speak any good news at all until the church actually understands the reality that it is living and has crafted bad news in public policy. It has established theological foundations for oppression that have lived throughout the times and only changed shape over the generations, but has not been repented of. Bad theology always produces diminished psychology. Diminished psychology produces dysfunctional sociology. Dysfunctional sociology always produces oppressive anthropology, and then they always produce oppressive economics and ideologies. You see, it all flows from bad theology. Your notion of God is wrong or flawed. Your notion of self and others and power is wrong. Thank you for listening to The Opening Podcast with Rick Pitcock. The Opening is a podcast that deconstructs the power dynamics of religious hierarchies and opens us up to healthy relationship. For more information about today's episode, please check out rickpitcock.com and follow on social media at Rick Pitcock.